necessary, uh, maybe, you know, whatever the situation is, uh, we'd love to start having families host them for dinners, uh, and, and it could be varying nights of the week, we'll start working all of that out. But we'd like you to be thinking about that and praying about that. Uh, you know, we've talked a number of times about the importance of meals in Scripture, but even even in our own lives, you know, we're, we're, we're kind of not close to that culture. But even in our own lives, a dinner is an important thing. A dinner is, is a special thing. And, it, and a lot of good things happen at a, at a dinner. And all we'd be asking you to do is host for dinner. We'll, we'll uh, take care of everything else, arranging it and making all that happen. So we would love to have you do that. Um, we're looking at a, just a quick series. And then we've got a couple of book series we're going to be launching into uh, in September. But a quick series, I entitled it, What Kind of Church Are We? Kind of going off of, we say this a lot, you know, we, we, we say uh, everybody's welcome, nobody's perfect, and anything is possible when God is involved. So we're taking each one of those phrases and kind of working with it, talking about what kind of church are we? And today we, I want to talk about this whole idea of nobody's perfect. But I want to, uh, first let me do this, let's, let's read the scripture and, and I'm going to do something a little different, just sometimes just to change it up, because it, it's interesting, you know, when you have a, a ch- churches that are very traditional, and you have churches uh, maybe that tend to be not as traditional, and we tend to move more that way, but what happens is whatever we're doing right now in 20 years is going to be the tradition, and so we'll end up being traditional. So every once in a while, I just want to do something that just changes. We don't often do it, but let's do this. If you're able... I'd love for you to stand while we read this scripture. Oftentimes in times past, people would stand during the reading of scripture because it honored and showed a respect to scripture. So starting with verse nine, to some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. This is the word of God. Thank you. You may be seated. I want to review last week just a little bit. Last week we talked about this special kind of community that God has in mind where you are welcome regardless of ethnicity, of culture, of background, and regardless of whatever the string of things we want to say, people tend to separate themselves over. Regardless of all those things, you are welcome here. Why? And ultimately, the ultimate foundational reason is because God loves people. He loves people. So there's no us versus them. There's no boundaries to determine who is in and who is out. And we come across in the passage we looked at last week, this stunning idea that you never know who is one ask away from a relationship with God. You never know. We think we know, right? We think we know. We have, we have, you have that person you work with and go, yeah, well, no. That's non-elect right over there. You know, that person is not one of the chosen. I can tell from, a, you know, we, we tend to, to look at people that way. But here's Matthew the tax collector, the type of person 
everyone agreed was the furthest from God. He would have probably admitted he was the furthest from God. But it turns out he wanted to be close to God. He just didn't think it was possible. And Jesus intervened in his life and radically changed it. And it was an incredible change. He reached out to his friends. He threw a dinner party with Jesus. And as a church, we want to be a place that absolutely everybody is welcome. We want this to be like a Matthew party. You can invite your friends. You can invite anyone, and they will be welcomed. You can come as you are. You know, when you say this, oftentimes I've said to people, you can come as you are, and they'll, they'll say something like, well, do I have to believe a certain thing? I say, no, no, you can come as you are. Do I have to dress a certain way? No, you can come as you are. Well, I've got some stuff in my background. Don't worry. You can come as you are. Am I going to have to listen to a really long sermon? Ooh. Uh-oh. Maybe. <laughs> That's when I lie. Okay, yes. <laughs> Probably. So, we looked at that last week. Now, this Sunday, a little bit of a more sobering reality. Because we're, at a, we're, uh, we're a place also that acknowledges that no one is perfect. Now, the question is, are you willing to accept this reality about yourself? Because we all tend to deny and sometimes deceive ourselves a little bit. This is well documented. I talked about this a few weeks ago in some studies where people think they're stronger than they are. Oftentimes people think they're more good looking than they are. They often think that they weigh less than they really do. They, uh, they have all these different things. They, they, they think they did certain things that maybe they didn't quite do it the way they thought they did you know, as time goes on. And we tend, to, we tend to deny, especially we tend to deny and push back the things about ourselves that we don't like. And so you might not think about yourself as a really religious person or even a very spiritual person, but it doesn't matter. Every one of us has a tendency to find ways of, of mitigating what we think about ourselves and looking down on other people so that we're superior to other people because of whatever, our, whatever reason we choose, but it's very human. And so we struggle with this. But we want to have a place where we freely admit that nobody is perfect so I think, you know, there's some sting to this, but there's also some freedom to this when we investigate it. And Jesus talks about this in what we read. He, he's pointedly trying to address this very issue, this chronic human issue, this chronic issue with religious people or even people of faith. Because what happens is when we start trying to follow God, oftentimes we look around and go, well, I, I'm, not, I'm not as bad as that. I'm not as bad as that. I'm not as bad as that. I'm better than those people who aren't trying. And so that's what this first verse is all about. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Now, I want to say this first because the first thing we tend to say is, oh, the Pharisees. And, and the, the Pharisees were like that. But there was more than just the Pharisees like that. A lot of even, even just average Jewish people, they kind of looked at others like, well, at least, you know, I'm the, we're the people of God. You people aren't even trying. And so that was a normal, natural thing that happened. And so his audience, they think they're doing great. They think they're better than others. And it has deceived them. Because in Jesus' eyes, they're doing terrible. But they haven't figured that out yet. They haven't been honest enough to address that in their lives. And so he's going to give them a truth encounter. And it's going to be difficult. And we need to pay attention. Because the first thing we can do is we can say, well... I'm not like those Pharisees, so judgmental. And what did I just do? 
I judge the Pharisees. I practice judgmentalism. And so we, we have to be careful. We have to be open to what God may want to say to us because this is going to be a truth encounter and we need to pay attention. So he says in verse 10, he's saying, okay, to those people who are confident in their own righteousness and they had a tendency to look down on other people, Jesus said this, two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Now, he uses... This is typical in Jewish writings. They're using the, he's using the extremes. He wants to make a point, so he's using the extremes. You have the Pharisees who are on the extremely righteous side, and you have a tax collector. Now, we talked about tax collectors last week. I can't go into a ton of detail about it, but just, just so you know, they're, they're, they're Jewish people who are traitors to the Jews. They're corrupt. They cheat the Jews. They enforce Roman laws that oftentimes are, very, uh, are not even-handed, are not fair. And so they hated tax collectors, hated them to the point, and, and I want to emphasize this because it kind of helps us understand, they hated them to the point that some tax, uh, Roman citizens and soldiers and tax collectors knew, you don't go out at night alone. You'll end up with a knife. You don't go out at night alone because those are the most hated people. And the people who are killing them are the people we call zealots. And the zealots were the freedom fighters. The Romans considered them terrorists. You know, freedom fighter, terrorists, it depends on what side you're on. And, and, and so the, the, uh, the Romans considered them terrorists. The zealots were the freedom fighters. And they practiced stuff that even we see even today. Surprise attacks, you know, things. For, and so they just, they just knew that. So they hated tax collectors. All right? So to anybody who's listening in that day, the good guy in this story is the Pharisee. Just understand that to them. The Pharisees were known for their devotion to Torah and to God. They were known for being zealous about the things that God said to be zealous about. They were, being, they were, they were very zealous about being clean, ceremonial cleanliness, about following the law, about doing the right thing. The Pharisee is the good guy, no questions asked. The tax collector is the bad guy, no questions asked. You know, corrupt, traitor, cheated people out of their money. You know, it occurred to me, I was thinking about this. Sometimes I think about weird things. Jesus is there with his disciples, and he starts teaching this. Who is the most uncomfortable person there? Matthew. Because, remember last week? Matthew's a tax collector who became one of Jesus' disciples. And I can just imagine, can you imagine, he, they start this story, a Pharisee and a tax collector went to the temple to pray, Matthew's going, oh man, I hope nobody recognizes me, you know? And then also remember one of Jesus' other disciples, Simon the Zealot. And I can imagine Matthew thinking, I hope Simon doesn't rat me out to this crowd, that would be something he would do. You know, just, just that whole sense of that human feeling of Jesus is going to tell a parable. The Pharisee's the good guy. The tax collector's the bad guy. And there's a tax collector sitting there right behind you, standing there right behind Jesus going, doggone it. You know, sweating it because he's uncomfortable with this story. He's looking around that crowd, reading that crowd. Where do I run if things get ugly? You know, he could just see it. Verse 11. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. You know, I fast 
twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. So the Pharisee gets up and he starts praying. And he prays out loud. And, and, and it's interesting because the Pharisee, it says, stood by himself. That's perfectly natural. Pharisees are very interested in cleanliness. They do not rub shoulders with people because their whole thing was, what if you accidentally bump somebody you're not supposed to bump? Because they believed, you know, you're not suppo- supposed to bump people who are sick. That makes you unclean. You're not supposed to, unless it's, unless it's you're married or it's a member of your family, you're not supposed to bump into a woman. And they're not supposed to bump into men. They're not supposed to touch or that renders you unclean. And so they're worried about all of these things that, that would do that. So the Pharisees would keep a distance because they're so spiritual. They would keep their distance from those bad people, those evil people. They would distance themselves from people because it was understood to be one of the ways that you proclaimed how devoted you were to God. And no one thought this was odd Everyone there listening to this would have expected the Pharisee to stand apart from everyone because he's trying to keep clean. They totally understand that. And he distanced himself, not just physically, because if you read this, he distanced himself spiritually, emotionally, and personally. He says, God, I think that I'm not like these other people. And then he, that person and that person and that person. There, but for the grace of God, go I. You know, he's saying, God, thank you. That I'm not that way. But here's the thing. You know, we could say there, but for the grace of God, go I. He's not thinking about the grace of God. Because here's the deal. He distanced himself physically, spiritually, emotionally, and personally. And he says, thank you, God. Thank you that I'm not like that. He says, look, I could be like that guy. Now, how does a Pharisee know he's doing well? It's not in her character because he's going to list why he's spiritual. He does it for us. He says there, I fast twice a week. Now, in the Old Testament, there was one fast that was commanded. That was on the Day of Atonement. There were other fasts that were optional. You could do them. You didn't have to do them. So you were, the Jews were commanded one day a year. They had to fast. There was no choice about it. It was a command. Now, he fasts twice a week, 104 days a year. Think of the extra credit he got. Right? He's getting all this added up. He, he, I mean, he did. He's obviously, he mentioned it. He's banking on it. He's banking on this extra credit from God. Look, and this is what it is. Look what I've done. Look what I have done. He's there and he's taking credit. Why? Because he earned it. That's how he looks at it. And then what does he say? He says, I give a tenth of all I get. Now, the tithing practice, the giving of the tenth, was a big deal in the Old Testament, and actually it amounted to more. It was, it was three separate ones that each were about a tenth, um, and it was very complex. And so there would be rabbis who would discuss this. They would do this all the time. They would talk about, do you tithe on products that have already been tithed on? If the farmer has tithed on his grain, and then he sells it to you, do you have to tithe on the grain? And they'd go back and forth and back and forth, and some said yes, and some said no. And, and it, was, it was like this incredibly incredibly complex tax code that has all these deductions and loopholes. And oh, it's kind of like ours, right? Yeah, it's just, just like what we have, all right? And this guy voluntarily takes no deductions. He takes no deductions. He's, he's, he's just a flat rate voluntary tither. And he's proud of this because he knows he's doing extra. And so he mentions it. And th- this, is, this is what's so interesting. He reminds God 
God, just in case you forgot, I've really been doing well lately. Fasting like a big dog, right? And tithing, woohoo, I'm special. You ever notice how we get that way? Man, it's so easy to do. You do your devotions, like, like you spend time with God, and, you see, and you're doing it regular, and after a while you go, dude, I'm killing it. I got this thing down, me and God, right? So what, uh, suddenly it becomes you. It becomes about you, and that's what's happened here. This, this guy voluntarily does this, and people would look at this and go, he's amazing. He's amazing. He sets the bar so high. Look at him fasting twice a week. That's amazing, all right? For all of us, we have values. We have ways that we say, I'm better than those people. It could be, it could be religious things. It could be political ideology. It could be, it could be the values that we have just that, that are our personal values, ways that we look around and we say, I'm better than this person. It's how we set those boundaries. It's how we exclude. How do we know who's in? One of us. And who's out? Not one of us. Well, we set up ideas. We set up rules. We set up values. If you do this, 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 you're in. If you don't, you're out. And you're not one of us. And we divide things into, we're tribal people. It's something that that happens all over the world. We divide the world into the people who are like us and the people we decide are not like us. And as I mentioned a couple weeks ago, it's very interesting in some of these studies when you look around at the people who are in your group, you think they're so multifaceted, so variated, so much difference, and, and, it's, and it's so beautiful. And when you look at others, you go, they're all alike. They're all alike. You tend to denigrate and reduce. And this is what's going on here. And it's universal. And we have to be self-aware enough to begin to evaluate and spot it in our own lives the ways we can look down on others. And that's the Pharisee. The other guy, the tax collector, everyone there agrees he's a loser. Everyone agrees he's a failure. Everyone agrees he's a traitor. So what happened? The tax collector, he also stood at a distance. But it wasn't about cleanliness. It was about safety. It was about the fact that no one liked him, and he knew it. And he knew it. So the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. He separated himself, not because he looks down on people, but it's because he knows, he feels, he has no business being there. He knows he's messed up his life. He knows what kind of person he is. He knows that if God, unless God is incredibly gracious, he's in deep trouble. And this bears heavily on him. So he won't even lift up his eyes to heaven. He won't, even, he won't even look up. There's something inside of us. You know, if we feel guilty, we don't want to make eye contact with the person we feel guilty about. If I've, if I've hurt someone, I don't, I, I've, eye contact is so it's painful. It's true. It's true in everything. Our daughter Holly had a, had a dog. It was a beautiful dog. She named him George W. I don't know what that, exactly what that means, but she named him George W. And that dog was so loving. 
you know, we go away for an hour or two to grocery shop or whatever, and you come and he'd be at the door. And you'd open the door and he'd be like, oh, you came back. I was so worried. I thought you'd left me forever. But you're back. My master is found. I, I love you. I love you. I love you. Right? And I'd get down and I'd rub his head and he'd look at me and I'd like, George, you're a great dog, you know. So one day, we're coming back. I open the door. He's not at the door. I was like, what? That's just weird. And he comes walking over. Kind of slinking towards us with his tail down. I'm like, George, buddy, what's wrong? Are you sick? I've just, I haven't seen you act this way. Then I saw the pile, right? I looked over in the living room and this is the crazy thing because he's looking at me kind of like, and he sees me looking. He's like, I'm out. And he turned and went right under the dining room table and laid down and just, uh, and I'm like, George. And I went over, so I get his face and look at me. And he's like, <laughs> looking everywhere he can look instead of in my face. Why? Because he knew he was wrong. This is why this man won't look up. He won't look up. Cats will never look you in the eye. I just want you to know that. And that's because they're busy trying to think of how they'll kill you. They won't look you in the eye. It's just something to think about. I just feel like it's my duty to warn you. All right? So this man, he won't look at God. He, he won't even look up. He can't. He senses it. He senses it. It says he beat his breast. And, and, and you know, we, we like, what, what is that? I don't understand what that is. And, but in those days, it was an incredibly meaningful action. And, and, and um, I was just reading up on a guy who... who um, has studied this quite a bit, and he basically said this. It means it's a symbol of ex- exp- an extreme expression of sorrow, of humiliation, of regret, and of hopelessness. You know, there's one other time in the New Testament we record someone beating their breast, and it's when Jesus dies. Sorrow. Hopelessness. What did the disciples feel at that moment when Jesus died? Hopelessness. It's over. They had no concept of that resurrection that was coming. They thought it was over. They fled. And so it's an extreme expression. Humiliation, regret, sorrow. Built in hopelessness. This guy is going, I have no hope. I have no hope but for one thing. God, have mercy on me. A sinner. He faces it, and he names it. Now, I want to tell you, up to this point, everything that's been happening, they're all fine with. They're like, of course he would say something like that. He, he's, he's, a, he's a terrible person. Up to this point, they still have no problem identifying with the Pharisee. Yep. He's the righteous guy. He's the one that's close to God. He's the one that loves God. His actions demonstrate it. He is not, in any way we can think of, close to God or even has a chance of being close to God. To them, the Pharisee is obviously the good person, the person that God considers righteous. He's obviously in. When we start to set up the boundaries of in us, them, in, out, friend, other. He's in. The Pharisee is. And that's why verse 14 is such an incredible verse. 
Because there's a twist here that no one saw coming. I tell you that this man, the tax collector, this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled. And those who humble themselves will be exhausted. Exalted. Jesus is saying, I tell you, this man, the tax collector, the misfit, the loser, the moral failure, this man rather than the other, the Pharisee, the devout guy, the good guy, the right thinker, the good doer, this tax collector went home justified, accepted in right relationship before God. That's what he's saying. And then he applies it with that last phrase. This is a phrase that describes the posture of people with whom God can work and the posture of people with whom God cannot work. And it runs all through Scripture. Those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. And I'm telling you, everybody's jaw hit the floor. Because they're thinking, really? The tax collector? You know, these people all knew what was supposed to be a good person. We all know what we think. Everybody in the world, in the whole world, whether they're religious or not, they have ideas of what is a good person. What is a person who does right? Who's righteous, not just in a spiritual sense, but righteous in a sense of with other people? Who is that person? We all have that idea. And what we do is we all kind of exonerate ourselves by looking around at other people we know are worse than us. And so let's do, let's do it in the spirit of tax collectors. Let's have a righteousness audit, all right? Because back in those days, if you think about how they would measure a good person in a religious community, let's see who comes on top. Who would read the Bible more regularly, the Pharisee or the tax collector? Definitely the Pharisee. Basically, Pharisees had the whole Old Testament memorized. Who do you think prayed more often, the Pharisee or the tax collector? The Pharisee for sure. Who knew their biblical doctrine better? The Pharisee. Who had a better spiritual reputation amongst all the devout people? The Pharisee. Who went to synagogue more often? The Pharisee. If you allowed them to do self-assessment and you asked the Pharisee and the tax collector, which one of you really loves God with everything in you? The Pharisee would be the one to go, yeah, that's me. That would be. One more category. Who do you think was more aware of their desperate need for God? the tax collector. He just was saying, oh God, oh God, oh God, I need you. I need your mercy. See, Jesus calls this, he calls this, this, this awareness, this public confession of our desperate need for God, he calls it humility. It's that idea of no pretending, no hiding. See, we can say nobody's perfect, and some people are like, oh yeah, we kind of shrug, yeah, nobody's perfect, dude, it's fine. Nobody's perfect, you know, but, but it's, it's much more than that. Because what it means is no one comes pretending. No one wears a mask. And this is a real, this is a real problem on Sunday mornings. We're all here. Everyone looks pretty nice, pretty put together. And no one knows that for a lot of us, we're struggling. There's issues. We're dying inside. But we got the masks on. I mean, I always think about, I, I 
younger at a church with little kids and driving to church and two little kids getting a fight and you're reaching in the back seat. Stop that. You, I swear I'll jerk you out of that seat. You know, and you pull in that church parking lot and the magical transformation happens, right? Prang. Hey, Bob, how are you? Praise the Lord, brother. Things are great. I'm down a kid because of murder, but other than that, things are great. Bless God, right? We, we just, you're going to be all kinds of things. A husband and wife can be snipping at each other. Man, you, you hit church, hit that parking lot, pring. And it, no, one, no one knows why, because we wear masks. And when we say nobody's perfect, that means we have to get in the practice of stopping wearing of masks. We have to be. We have to. Because Jesus is saying that the awareness and the public confession of our need for God brings, it comes out of humility. It comes out of not wearing masks. Masks, masks are a manifestation of pride. You try to make yourself look better than you are. And so when no one comes pretending, when no one comes faking like they have it together, because when you do, no one really knows you, Right? But when we become real, there's a freedom that comes with that. Now, obviously, I understand, because some of you are thinking, okay, Bob, let's get real. How does that work? Obviously, it doesn't mean you walk in here and everyone you meet, you know, they say, how you doing? Well, let me just tell you. Blah. And you just, you just, no, it comes through relationships. You build relationships. But when we say everybody's welcome, what are we saying? We want to build relationships with you. When we say nobody's perfect, what we're saying is, is then as relationships build, people get honest and they talk and they share and they laugh and they cry together. They pray together. This is why, man, small groups are so important. It becomes a perfect place for that to happen. But I want, to, I want you to know, healing comes when you're known. Sickness remains when you hide. Man, healing comes through being known. But hiding just prolongs sickness. And the problem is, I mean, I know that you know, the longer that you're in church, the more you feel like you have to hide these things, right? Because, because if someone's new to us and they say, oh, man, this Jesus thing is so new to me. My life is kind of messy and I'm, I'm working through it. We're all like, yeah, sure, we understand. Nobody's perfect, right? But if somebody's been here for 15 years and they go, man, I just got this. And they're like, wait. What we think is that everybody's going to look at us and say, you're supposed to be past that. In reality, I've never heard anyone say that when I've talked to them about stuff I struggle with. But we think that's what's going to happen. And the pressure amps, you know, as with, with age and position and whether you, whether you do things and, you know, like, especially if you're the pastor, right? You just can't get up in front and tell people you're a sinner. You can't do it. And I just do it because it's just the way it is. We got we to gotta let ourselves be known. Uh, I have on your sheet, there's a quote there, because this is one of the best ways I've heard this articulated. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a pastor and a theologian and ultimately gave his life for his faith um, um, in Nazi Germany. He wrote a book called Life Together, and he, and he was critiquing how churches tend to create environments and communities that, that reinforce the concealing of sin. And he said that many Christians are unthinkably horrified when a real sinner is suddenly discovered among the righteous. We remain alone in our sin. So... We remain alone with our sin, living in lies and hypocrisy. We don't want to admit what we struggle with. 
We, we don't want to say it. We don't want others to know it. And we're ta- we live in a world where we are taught to hide so reflexively. It's just automatic. In our world, if you want people to welcome you, the bar can be set so high. Because our world is a world for winners. Jesus, Jesus starts this community and it's for misfits. It's for the broken. It's for sinners. It's for people who are willing to be humbled because they recognize their enormous need of God. In our world, you're supposed to be as rich as Warren Buffett. You're supposed to be as smart as Albert Einstein. I had to get this one in. You're supposed to be as strong as Andre the Giant. We had to go Prince's Bride. I mean, it's like required. You have to be, you have to be as handsome as... There's a million different people that are handsome, so I don't know. I put George Clooney. But Jesus is starting a community where he wants you to be as strong as Warren Buffett. Jesus is starting a community where he wants you to be as sexy as Albert Einstein. Jesus is smart as Andre the Giant, and there's nothing about George Clooney that I could figure out what to say in that, in that thing. So, The worst thing that we can do is to become a successful church for successful people just hiding from each other. And I think this story that Jesus tells here, this parable that Jesus tells, the point is that when a person realizes I need mercy because I'm a sinner, change happens. When a person realizes I've been following my way my whole life and my way is no good, God, I have to surrender and follow your way. Change happens. Why? Because God comes involved. The Holy Spirit becomes involved because real change can only be driven by God. And the good news is Jesus came to earth so that he could understand and minister to us because he knows how it feels to be a human being on this earth. That's an amazing thought. I want to read you. It's not on the screen or anything. I want to read you this scripture, though, real quick. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses. For we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, and yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence. The throne of grace. Just so we understand, he says, I want you to make sure when you're approaching it, this is what it is. It's the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. I love the word for empathize. The Greek word is the word actually where we get sympathize, but the English word sympathize has changed over the years. It doesn't reflect the Greek very well because if you talk to sociologists a lot of times, they'll talk about, they'll talk about sympathy and empathy as two words that are similar but have different shades of meaning, all right? The word sympathize can mean like you see someone in a deep hole and you look down and you say, wow, I am really sorry for you. That must be so difficult. Can I get you a sandwich or something, right? That's sympathy. Empathy is this. Empathy is you see someone in a deep hole so you climb down and say, you're right, this is terrible. Now, let's figure a way out of here. Let me help you get out. That's the difference between empathy and sympathy. That's the difference between our English word for sympathy and the word they translated empathy in this passage that I just read you, but some translate it sympathy because it's a word that kind of comes from that. But it's that idea of I get down in with that person and experience it with them, not apart from them. 
Because sympathy is the apart. Sympathy is like, gone. that looks tough. I feel bad for you. Man, hope it works out. Sympathy is, I'm coming down with you. Let's get in here together. Now let's figure this out because I know how it feels now. I feel what you feel. And he says, we have a high priest who empathizes with us. He's felt it. He knows how it feels. Jesus knows the hole you're in. Why? Because he's been in it. He's lived it. So when we think about nobody is perfect, it requires us to admit our faults or we're, we're faking that we're perfect. We have to be transparent. We have to admit our struggles. And remember, that's what brings healing in our lives. We have to stop putting on masks and hiding. Because in the kingdom of God, the road to perfect is not around our brokenness. It's through it. Paul said this. He says, but God said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in your weaknesses, in your weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may come to rest on me. Christ's power works through our weaknesses, he says. I want to do that. My power is made perfect in your weakness. And that's when we're willing to humble ourselves. We're willing to admit, God, I need you desperately. God, I'm not perfect. I don't want to pretend I'm perfect. I don't want people to think I'm perfect because I'm not. And when we can do that, then we can tell people, everybody's welcome. Why? Because nobody's perfect. We're all in this hole together. But we think we found a way out, and we'd love to share it with you. We're like the tree. We found life. Taste and see. The Lord is good. We found it here. We found it. That comes through a relationship with Jesus Christ. That comes through being dependent on the Holy Spirit to act and move in your life and change you from the inside out. And that's the only way real change happens. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this parable. Lord, it is so easy for us to be Pharisees. It is so easy for us to judge and critique and not to apply to ourselves. Help us, Lord, to be self-aware and to think through what we, who we are in you and where we stand. And God, give us a heart and a desire to reach people in our neighborhoods, people in our city, people all over the world with this good news that we have found. There's a way out of the hole. In Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to take an offering. Uh, this is something we do. We don't want you to feel pressured if you're a guest here, our regular tenders and our members. This is part of their worship.